Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, my name is Andrew Jones. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus. And uh, if you know me at all, uh, you know that uh, car maintenance is not a strength, not a strength of mine. This is uh, one of the most stressful things for me to see in the whole world is this. Don't act like it doesn't stress you out too. Uh, when I see this in my car, and I know there are others out there that do this. When I see this in my car, I just keep driving. I just, it's like, ah, it's probably fine. It'll, it'll turn off eventually on its own. If you don't believe me, this is a live look at my dashboard. Uh, as of this morning, there are two indicator lights on, and I'm ashamed to tell you how long those lights have been on uh, in my car. Please don't, don't judge me. This is a, this is, I'm trying to be transparent with you. I'm trying to be honest with you. Okay, despite, despite all that, uh, even I know the value of an indicator light. Uh, indicator lights help you see things that you could not otherwise see on your own, right? Things like the tire pressure in your tires, the air pressure in your tires, or the oil and coolant level in your engine, which are things that if you ignore long enough, your, tar, your car will totally break down. If you think about it, the human body has indicators like this too. Uh, I was thinking this week, how many lives have been saved, you think, just from like a routine blood test that showed high white blood cell or high cholesterol, which indicated something even more dangerous, like uh, the presence of cancer or heart disease or things like that. It's amazing how much you can tell by just by measuring one or two things what's actually happening inside of your body, things that you can't see. And that principle kind of got us thinking this week as we prepared uh, for this message today, uh, which is this question, does the human soul have indicators like this? Are there gauges in the human life? Are there, are there outward signs of the inner reality of who we really are? And uh, Jesus answers this question. He says, yes. He says, yes, we do. And in our passage this morning, which I'm, I'm going to read in, in just a minute, he points to one of the, the most powerful ones, and one in particular. It's one of the clearest signs to you and me, uh, whether we are followers of Jesus or not, whether we know him or not. And so I want us, I want us to take a look. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 25. I'm going to start reading in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did, not, you did it to me. Then he'll look at those on his left. Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. 
naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Right, we often read a passage like that. Uh, and we get really distracted by the hell part, <laughs> which makes sense. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that. I, I understand why that happens. But, but here's what I, I held off on that reading because I wanted to frame this first. Because what Jesus is really saying here is profound. I don't want us to miss it. Of all the things Jesus could point to as the indicator for the Christian life, here is what he actually says. The key question for him and we've, we've summarized it this way. Here it is. Do you love who the world ignores? This is Jesus' question. Do you love who the world ignores? And I know there's a grammar Nazi out there. I know it should be whom, but it sounded weird, so we didn't do that. Okay? Love, do you love who the world ignores? Do you love the marginalized, the mistreated, the vulnerable people of the world? with no voice, no advocates, no resources. And if the answer is yes, this is a good sign that you know Jesus and you love him. If the answer is no, right? even if that person claims to be a Christian but shows no tangible support for the marginalized or mistreated and ignores the same people the world tends to ignore, right? it means that this light is flashing in that person's face. Check engine. And you might not actually understand the life Jesus has come to offer you. So this is a gauge I don't want any of us to ignore. We cannot afford to ignore this. So let's take a, uh, let's take a look. If, you, if you've been with us the last few Sundays, you know we've been in a section of Matthew where Jesus is preparing his followers for the end, the end of time. And really, he's been doing that since chapter 24. And if you've missed the last few weeks of, of messages, I really encourage you to go back online and listen to those. They really build on one another. But this is the last, what we just read is the last thing Jesus says about the end. This is it. And he, here's how he starts off. Let me just summarize it. He says, in the end, the Son of Man, that, that's Jesus referring to himself, the Son of Man will sit on his throne when he comes again and will separate people the way a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I think Jesus is being really clear here. He's saying, I hate goats and that's it. I hate goats. <laughs> I, had to, we, we, I thought about printing these off and just having them as our takeaway, our big takeaway for the day. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, forgive me. That is not our big takeaway for the day. <laughs> Let me tell you why Jesus says this. So, so sheep and goats in the, in the first century, uh, they were often uh, tended by the same shepherd which makes sense, uh, during the day. And then at night, uh, they, were, they would be separated because goats, or um, sheep, uh, did, slept more alone. They, they're better insulated. They don't mind the cold. And goats need to be kind of herded together uh, to keep each other warm so they would not sleep in the same spot. This was a common practice uh, of Jesus' day. So Jesus is using this image. He's saying the world is actually just two groups of people. They're all grazing together. 
You cannot at a glance tell one group from the other. But at the end, Jesus will come and separate everyone into two groups. They lived and they worked and they played side by side throughout history, but now they're separated. And this this is really a picture of the final judgment. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the whole Bible, when when you read it, is clear on this, that there is at the end of time a final reckoning of every human life called the final judgment. And Jesus is in charge. If you want to understand this passage, if you want to understand the biblical story, you really have to acknowledge that judgment is coming. That's not really the focus of this passage. Let me, actually, uh, to say judgment is coming to a first century Jewish person, right, the original audience here, was not a controversial thing to say. They knew and understood that, that judgment was coming. But as modern Western people, this is just so counterintuitive for us. This isn't the water we swim in. And in fact, uh, this is probably, um, I want to take just a minute to talk about it because this is probably one of our least favorite doctrines, right? If we're being honest with each other. This is one of those things that right, where you're talking to the person who's, who's not a Christian or, or skeptical about the faith. This is one of the things they point to and say, you believe in a judgment? And people go to hell? Like, how, how archaic is that? How, how can you possibly follow anyone who teaches? I, I get it. I get it. It's one of those things that can easily be abused or misused as a, as a way for, a self, for our own self-righteousness, our own judgmentalism. It's not the point of this doctrine. Here, here's what I want us to talk about a little bit, is that we have to reckon with, as a culture, the necessity of judgment for life to make any sense at all. I know it's not popular, and it's probably not our favorite, but we have to reckon with, as a culture, the necessity of judgment for life to make any sense at all. Right? No one, and I, I could talk, no one captures this idea better than a guy named Arthur Miller, who is not a, not a believer, not a religious person at all, as far as I can tell. It's a playwright. He wrote a play called After the Fall, and this was actually during a time in his own personal life that was very dark. Um, and he has a character in this play named Quentin. And Quentin, in many ways, kind of represents uh, Arthur Miller. It's like his, his personification in the play. And, I, and here's what he says. It's one of the most profound things I've, I've, I've read in a while. Just, just listen to this line. Quentin says, For many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. It it sounds so liberating, doesn't it, to say there's no judge. Do whatever you want. You're accountable to no one. Do what you think is best. Do what you think is right. That's all that matters. And yet what, what, what Arthur Miller is saying here, he's saying that's not freeing news at all. No judge is the worst news we could get. 
because it means that all of our moral intuition, right and wrong, good and evil, love and hate are made up. There's no one to tell you what's right and wrong. They're made up. They're all pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. See how disturbing that is? And no one really believes that. No one really believes, for example, that loving your children and abandoning them is a moral equivalent. It's like, well, whatever you want to do. No one thinks that. We know one is right and one is wrong, but for that to be true, there must be a judge. And there has to be consequences. Otherwise, it just, it doesn't matter. What we call anything, what we do, our work, our relationships, our loves, our victories, none of them mean anything without a judge. We need a judge. And if we need a judge, then we need hell. We need a place where real evil is dealt with, don't we? We need it. And I could develop the point, but I actually won't do it as well as this clip from Modern Family. Just bear with me. This clip from Modern Family <laughs> does it better than I can. Okay, this is a father and son talking uh, about hell after they skip church on Sunday. So just watch. Look at that. That's a perfect shot. And I hit that with a bent club. So you're not worried about getting in trouble? You know, with God? Oh, I think he's got bigger things on his plate. So you're not worried about hell? Let me let you in on a little secret, kid. There is no hell. Seriously? No hell? That's fantastic! So everyone just goes to heaven? Yep. End of story. Even bad people? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in another section. See, they got this thing figured out. Can I hit this? You distracted me. I didn't say anything. I could hear you thinking. I'm thinking about this heaven of yours that's full of bad people. Not full, the tiniest fraction. They're walled in. What if they break out? surrounded by a lake of fire. There are fiery lakes in heaven. This is turning into hell. <laughs> Tell me about it. I just don't understand this bad section of heaven. What if they send you to the wrong place? They make mistakes with paperwork sometimes. I was put in a girl's health class last year and had to watch a very disturbing movie. Calm down. Instead of thinking all morning about what heaven's gonna look like, what it's not gonna look like, who's where, if there even is a heaven, why don't we just concentrate on this beautiful, carefree day that's in front of us? I'd rather concentrate on something you just said. There might not even be a heaven. I don't know. You seem pretty sure of yourself this morning. So what happens after you die? There's just nothing? Look, you're focusing too much on one little thing that I said. It was just a hunch, okay? A hunch? I'm skipping church based on a hunch? <laughs> All right, I don't freak out on me here, kid. You're playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. Listen, I want you to forget everything that I said, okay? Some things can be forgotten, Jay. <laughs> I know, so I, I, I showed it because it's, it's funny, but what a profound conversation, right? When you really think about it, Manny's beginning to realize as the son, I can't have heaven without hell. It doesn't work. We need it when you really think about it. Life doesn't make sense without it. There's, there's judgment coming. And even though I, I, that's hard news, I, I get it. It's also, in another sense, good news. We, we need it. 
And here's, let me just say, here's, here's the amazing thing about Christianity before we move on. Okay, the, the idea of judgment or retribution or karma, that is not unique to Christianity. Okay, almost every worldview has some concept of uh, retribution, right? The, the way you live now affects what happens next. It's not unique to Christianity. But what is unique to Christianity uh, is that Jesus takes that future judgment on himself. That's unique. When he dies on the cross, he's taking that, that judgment on you that you and I deserve, and he's putting it on himself. He's pulling it back from the future onto the cross. And anyone who believes in him, like his judgment applies to you. It's reckoned to you. So when you put your faith in Christ, your verdict, that final verdict, that final word over your life is already in on Jesus when you put your faith in him. I could do a whole sermon on that. We're not going to do that because that's not the point of this passage, right? Here, Jesus, here's where he goes next, okay? The indicator to know that your judgment has already happened to Jesus, right? That you've really put your faith in him is who you love. This is what sets the sheep apart, the one destined for Jesus' kingdom and happiness. Just, let me just remind you, look at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus is saying, you cared for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the foreigner and the naked and the sick and the prisoner. You cared for the most vulnerable people, the people the world often ignores, and that means you loved me. See how he personalizes this? Don't, don't miss that. He doesn't say, you clothed them. He said, you clothed me. It wasn't just talk. You meant it, so enter my kingdom. And notice the sheep are confused. They didn't do this to earn favor from Jesus. They didn't even think he noticed. Look at verse 37. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or and visit you? This is, they did this as an overflow of who they are. That's why it's such a powerful indicator. There's no hypocrisy or earning in their love. This isn't salvation by works. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't be surprised, right? Well, yeah, we did all that stuff. It's so that you would give us a good word. We, we, knew, we knew this was the outcome. They do it because they love who Jesus loves at their core. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me which shows us this, this kind of first principle, which is that a changed heart is a compassionate heart. That's what it indicates. That's how it's indicated. One of the surest signs that you've accepted Christ is your level of compassion for others. And this principle, biblically, it applies to all people, right? The Bible's full of God's heart for the, the oppressed, the marginalized, and justice and mercy, but Jesus specifically here, if you notice, he says, the least of these, my brothers, in this passage. He's focusing in a bit, right? When, whenever he says that, it, it means his followers. He's saying, do you love the least of these first and foremost in my church? Starting with the people sitting around you this morning. And this hit me hard because I, I have a tendency, not even consciously, but I have this tendency to measure my spirituality and my maturity around my daily devotional life. 
Did I read my Bible? Did I pray? Did I do my, my Bible study? How many uh, scriptures did I memorize, you know, this week? That's how I gauge. Those aren't bad things, but Jesus is asking, did you love well? That's his question. First and foremost in my church, did you love the awkward kid who doesn't have any friends? Did you, the discarded person, the coworker that no one has lunch with, the person who doesn't speak your language, isn't from your country, doesn't look like you or think like you? How did you treat them? Because how you treat them is really how you treat me. This is Jesus' point. When he looks at our dashboard, this is the first light he checks. Of all the things he could say, (laughs) he asks, did you love who the world ignores or not? And if we don't love those people, we are in serious trouble. Because whatever we don't do for them, Jesus says, you have refused to do for me. If a changed heart is a compassionate one, then the opposite is also true. A calloused heart is a doomed heart. If we ignore who the world ignores, if we think that we're called to love Jesus, but not really love the least of these, Jesus says, I have a place for you. Here's what it is. Read verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed one, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me no food. Thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. And they say back to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is, this is one of the most terrifying passages for me in, in the whole Bible. Right? The goats even call him Lord. They know who he is. That's not the problem. It's that the, the, the check engine light is blaring and they can't see it. And this scares me because I, I live an insulated, comfortable, unthinkably easy life compared to most of the world and most of human history. And hard, there's a reason. It's hard to love people who are hard to love, right? Thanks, Chet. <laughs> this is a warning to each one of us. Are we paying attention or are we driving on? Are we just plugging away? So what do we do? I just, I, there's just three, three things I, I want to talk about as we, we begin to apply this passage. Here, here's the first one. Be aware of your calluses. Be aware of your calluses. We all have them. We have blind spots with people that we no longer see. We don't even perceive them anymore. Assumptions that we make. Impressions that we get. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's Oscar season, I was, and we were thinking about how to illustrate this. Did anyone uh, see Florence Foster Jenkins? Anyone see that movie? with Meryl Streep. I have two preschoolers, so I don't see movies, so I didn't see this movie, but uh, I lo- the plot was really fascinating, right? It's, it's, the, it's the true story of this incredibly wealthy woman who, uh, because of her wealth, is really insulated, right? No one really tells her the truth, and, and she is convinced that she is one of the great opera singers of her, of her day, but she's actually just terrible. She's a terrible singer, but no one will tell her, in fact, her husband will hire a whole audience, he'll bribe whole audiences to, to applaud when she sings, and he bribes reviewers so that she gets a good review. She ends up performing at Carnegie Hall, like the pinnacle of her career, and she's terrible. And it just reminded me how clueless we can be. 
We can surround ourselves with people who agree with us and see the world the same as we do and who look like us and they don't challenge us. And we assume that my life is just like everybody else's life. That everyone has the same opportunities and privileges that I, that I do and that our, our voice is as good as it sounds in our head. And it's not. It's not true. And it can make us callous toward people who are different. So we can offer simplistic solutions to deeply complex problems. Or we can grow fatigued by the need we perceive around us and just shut down. I can't, I'm not even going to mess with it anymore. And one of our biggest calluses I think we have today is, is, is the local church. And this is really Jesus' focus, the family of faith. But we, how often, how easy it is to treat this bride, this, this, this body like a social club, as a place to impress other people. Or We're supposed to be family. Serving one another, sacrificing for one another, being there for each other, welcoming everyone, reaching beyond these walls and all that we do. And the church, when, when we really participate here, it can expose these calluses. That's part of its job. Getting you with people who aren't like you, to stretch you. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a time and a place where it is so easy to never befriend anyone who doesn't think exactly like you do. It is so easy. The internet has not helped, right? You just follow the people you want to follow. But what Jesus describes here ought to be alive and well in this place. And that's our task together. This is our stewardship. Are we living these things out? Are we getting to know one another? So know your calluses and be willing to let others speak into them. Okay, second thing. Do what Jesus says to do. Do what Jesus says to do. We thought about getting more creative with that because it's not very creative. I don't know if you noticed that. But that's what, this is what I needed this week. Just do what Jesus says to do. And I've used this before, so forgive me, but it's, it's so good. Francis Chan talks about, uh, he gives this illustration. He's a, he's a pastor and a, an author, a Christian author. And he says, okay, imagine my daughter comes to me and I say, sweetie, I need you to clean your room. And she kind of nods and leaves for an hour and she comes back and she says, hey, dad, yeah, I memorized what you said. You said clean your room. And then she says, in, in an hour, my friends are going to come over. We're going to go to my room. We're going to sit in my room and talk about what would it look like if I clean my room. <laughs> and Chan, you know, Chan's like, just clean your room. And it's, we, we, sometimes we make this whole obedience thing so weird. It's not that complicated. Let's do what Jesus says to do. So let's do this together this week, okay? We talked about this as a teaching team. Here's a practice I want to put in my life. I hope you do too. When, when you see someone new, someone new, a new neighbor, a classmate, coworker, or you're driving through the city and you see someone new, you see someone on the news you've never seen before, what if the first thought we had as a church was not what color is their skin, what language are they speaking, not who they voted for, or what, what is their sexual history, not how much money they make, how educated or attractive they are, not what nation they're from, whether they're real American or not, whether they're here legally or not. What if our first thought was, is this my brother or sister? And if they're not, how can I make them one? 
Radically different question, isn't it? Yeah, but they might be a tax drain or a threat to me, or they, may, they make bad choices, or I've, I've had bad experiences with that kind of person, or, or maybe I just don't like that kind of person. Yeah, but maybe they're family. This is Jesus' point. And family changes everything. If our literal brother or sister were hungry, would we even have to think about whether or not we would share with him? It should be that natural. This is Jesus' point. You're a family. If it was your child in a broken educational system, would you do something about it? Of course you would. If it was your family or your potential family that needed a job or shelter from violence or who lost everything for Jesus, like in a persecuted church and lived in constant danger, would we even need to have a conversation about how to help them? And and listen, I am not trying to condemn or pile on right now. I'm not. I, I simply, I have to, I have to impress upon you and me the seriousness with which Jesus talks about this. I can't, it cannot be overstated. He takes this personally. What you do to them, you do to me. And listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise. Should, I'm not saying we should just do what anyone wants us to do to help them or ignore helpful structures. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes saying yes is the worst thing you can do to someone. And sometimes in our effort to help, we've actually hurt more than we've helped. I I know all of that. But imagine if the church just thought this way. This is my family. Or they could be. It could change the world. So let's do what Jesus says to do. Let's just do what he says to do. Finally, we need to remember the compassionate one. We don't earn anything by living this way. But our compassion is an indicator of whether we've truly met the compassionate one, the compassionate lover of our souls. There is a judge coming. We have to listen to him. He expects us to obey what he says. But the unique thing about Jesus is he's already paid the debt. There's no judge like that anywhere else. He's already paid the debt. And if you think about it, we we were the ignored and the hated and the broken and the impoverished because of our sin. We were the oppressed by self-centeredness, thirsty for beauty and goodness, hungry for righteousness, having nothing to contribute on our own. So he gave it to us, everything. At the cost of his life, he left the privilege and power of his throne and entered our world to get us back. And on the cross and in the resurrection, he pays our debt. He's given everything to us. And so as we receive him as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, as you receive from him daily food to eat and water to drink and clothes to wear and freedom to enjoy, may we learn to love like him generously, sacrificially, patiently, Because when we should have been ignored, we should have been ignored. He came dear to love us. We've been given indescribable love. So my question for us this morning is what will we do with the love we've been given? Let's pray.
Father, we were hungry and you gave us the bread of life. We were thirsty and you gave us living water. We were naked and you clothed us in righteousness of Christ. We were imprisoned and you set us free. We were strangers without a country or home and you made us citizens of your kingdom. May we see our brokenness and our vulnerability in our neighbors this week. By your spirit, may we be known by our love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.